we do a lot of uh, the power training where we go with uh, 50 uh, RPM and then we change it to one minute standing where we do a uh, higher cadence try to stand up like you know, seen the style of Alberto try to do that because obviously he's pretty good at that Hey podcast listener you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about whether you're out training commuting or just riding around sit down and listen in because we're about to begin I got something to say man Yo, welcome to episode 124 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's trying to ride like Contador. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash crit. Now we are starting with a review today, something for everyone. Five stars by Robinator1969 from Australia. Love this podcast. Did my first 100-mile ride listening to Damien's show. So informative, easy to listen to, and it comes out every week at the same time. Whether you're a pro or a hack like me, there is something for everyone's level. Bam! Thank you, Robinator. 100 miles is a solid ride. But it's got to be more painful listening to me for that entire thing. But I do thank you very much for the review. And if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Because five stars makes me think... They keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. Thank you very much. Okay, the performance probe this week. And probe number one, compression garments and recovery from exercise-induced muscle fatigue, a meta-analysis. The purpose of this study was to determine the effects of compression garments on recovery following damaging exercise, which is pretty much when you're going to use them, but a systematic review and meta-analysis was conducted using studies that evaluated the efficacy of compression garments on measures of delayed onset muscle soreness, DOMS, muscular strength, and muscular power. Studies were extracted from a literature search of online databases. Data were extracted from 12 studies where variables were measured at baseline and at 24 and 48 and 70 two hours post-exercise. Analysis of pool data indicated that the use of compression garments had a moderate effect in reducing the severity of DOMS, muscle strength, and muscle power. These results indicate that compression garments are effective in enhancing recovery from muscle damage. The good news here, for those of you enduring the wrath of non-compression wearing folk, even though compression garments are common in pretty much every sport now, this also goes some way in justifying wearing them at all because the only justification for hard evidence like this study was why not wear them, meaning there is no reason to not wear them if they are going to give you a slight edge over not wearing them. So go forth, my tight-wearing brethren, and wear them until your legs are content. Probe number two, tracking collegiate runners, sleep, stress, soreness, recovery, and performance. An article looking at data collected over an entire season. It's pretty interesting. They have a lot of unique requirements because they are studying and trying to train through it. So this coach wanted to break down 
these requirements into data and see if he could find any trends that popped up. And he starts the article by saying that the problem with most data is that it is not actionable or it's a real pain to get people to use it. So the goal of the author is always to find better ways with his coaching practice and he wants to understand things that might influence his athlete's performance. Instead of hooking his athletes up to machines and making them lab rats, he likes finding ways of answering questions with data that is easy to take and understand. So over an entire season, he wanted to answer the question of what actually matters and how does it change? He talks about recovery and living the lifestyle of a runner and how it is super important to the actual training and performance. But what he wanted to get at is how do those markers change over the course of a collegiate season? With college athletes, he does say that you are dealing with a wide range of stresses. So it's not simply go to the workout and then wait until they come back the next day to practice. There are lots of other things going on. So what he wanted to get at is how does that change and can it give him a better understanding of how to modulate the workouts? So breaking down the data, he created an app where athletes could rate a variety of measures on a one to five Likert scale and this was self-reported data. He does kind of mention that people may be a bit skeptical about this but he found over the season that even if the athletes weren't doing the right things, they were still reporting all of the bad data, meaning if they got three hours of sleep, they would actually tell him they got three hours of sleep. So this is what they tracked, RPE, MPE, which is mental exertion of workout, stress level, energy level, soreness, pop, which is springiness or how the legs felt, sleep quality, sleep hours, and overall performance on a one to three simple scale, which is below average, average, and above average. So he's got a couple of comparisons with this information that had some interesting trends that kind of popped out. And the first one was comparing stress and sleep. He goes on to say that the data from the graph almost looks like a mirror image of each other. There is a clear trend to see reduced sleep correlating with increased stress levels. Of course, you can't make inferences based on causes, but since the stress levels increased the same day as the sleep decrease, we can assume that it was the sleep most likely playing a role in impacting the stress instead of vice versa. Why? Because the kids were reporting the previous night's sleep and tracking their current day's stress. If the stress was causing reduced sleep, we'd only see one day delay, which we tend not to. He does mention that while this isn't profound, it's still fascinating to see the relationship between sleep and stress. The next comparison he made was between physical versus mentally demanding workouts. Here, the athletes were tracking their physical exertion versus their mental exertion for runs and workouts. In the graph that was produced from this data, you can clearly see that the delineation between hard workouts and easy runs. You can see the variation in how demanding different workouts were. It's not simply hard and easy. There's a spectrum of physical and mental efforts. The other thing to notice is that while the mental and physical effort of the workouts are synced for the most part, there are differences. There are workouts that are entirely more physically demanding than mentally demanding. So the final bits of data that he compares are sleep hours, quality, and energy levels. And 
This time, they took a look at sleep hours in addition to the quality and compare that to the perceived energy levels. And with the charts, you can see that the energy levels do tend to mimic sleep quality and hours. So once again, this tells us that perception of an athlete's energy level is tied into how they slept the night before. And there is also a simple graph tracking soreness throughout the season in which there was a downward trend across the season, which makes perfect sense because it shows that while they were doing workouts that were still bringing some soreness towards the end of the season, they were eliminating that pretty quickly and the athletes were adapting to the workload. So wrapping this up here, the author says that it's nothing revolutionary, but seeing the importance of sleep and recovery reinforces some of the practices that they do. If nothing else, it's fascinating to peer into what training hard at collegiate level really looks like in terms of physical, mental, and emotional response. One thing that I did want to mention here while we are on the topic of running is I've just found out that there is the first ever power meter for runners. So it is claimed that it is the world's first running power meter and on the website it does show you that it will give you watts. So none of these other figures that all of these running devices are trying to do, it will give you actual watts. And I know this is a cycling show, but this is a serious breakthrough for runners and it gets me a little excited because... It allows for more crossover opportunities by opening this technology up to a new set of coaches that only deal with runners. I have to say, I absolutely love technology and I can't wait to see this in action and then all of the flow-on effect to the training methods that runners will start to adopt. Alrighty, the nuts and bolts this week. How to crush crits and be a better racer. I've got to be honest here, this is a repeat episode. I don't normally repost old material, but since the summer crits in Australia have started and I'm over in Australia at the moment, and definitely because this is one of the most underrated episodes of semi-pro cycling, I have decided to replay Criterium Racing Tips, Tactics, and Strategy. It's jam-packed full of information for anybody that's going out to a crit. I actually know one rider that would listen to this over and over again before every crit that they race to try and absorb this information. So I really love this episode and I hope you don't mind me playing it again. But if you are in Australia or somewhere where it's warm and it's crit season, then definitely I think you're going to get something out of it. So good luck to everyone riding a crit world champs whenever you are racing next. There is a definite perception that sprinters are all egotistical hard nuts that like to take risks, and these seem to be the guys that dominate crits, you know, the crazy ones that put everything below the importance of actually winning the race. But I really have to question how much this happens in lower grades because... It seems it's not just these guys, these alpha racers that are fierce and fearless when it comes down to the last couple of laps and they're willing to jostle for position and stay in there. I really believe there's other ways instead of putting your safety on the line for the win. And so if you're smart and you put yourself in the right spot, it can be done without the bravado of being a dangerous wanker. So I've put together some ideas here. And it's really covering the basics and discussing some tactics when you're riding for the win. A separate note 
that I want to talk about is confidence. I was actually talking on Monday with my buddies in our weekly cycling accountability phone call, and it seems that confidence really does fill the gap between where you are and where you want to be. I can kind of sum up confidence when I talk about confidence is like your riding as a contender. It's really the difference between taking that super tight gap that meant you got in the breakaway. It's holding a wheel. It's getting on any wheel you want. It's also knowing the best moves to make on race day and the right ones. So this is where I'm at and this is what I'm here to talk about this week. So I'll jump straight into it with the three rules of criteriums. What I believe are the three rules of just hanging out and staying in the bunch in the best position. Number one, start at the front row. Why the hell would you want to start at the front row? Well, it's a criterion and you never know which joker is going to go from the gun straight away into their own mini breakaway. So you want to be prepared, clipped in, quick, warmed up, ready to go. You don't really want to be that joker that's making attacks. You don't want to be the one that's blowing out your energy just because you have some nervous energy. It's a long race, even though it's a short race. So criteriums are tricky in that sense, but you have to be prepared from the start. Rule two, stay in the first 25%. I have always heard 25% or first third of the race. 25% probably gives you a good mental picture of where you should be staying. And the reason you want to stay there is because of the accordion effect. The accordion effect, if I can try and spell it out in its simplest terms, is if you're hitting a tight corner, not a flowy, long or rounded corner, but something that means you will have to break at some point, the leader's going to go into the corner at, say, 25 kilometers an hour, for example. They're going to go into it, and they're probably going to come out of that corner at the same speed. But as you start moving down the bunch, then you also get people sort of rubbernecking to see what's going on. They're slowing down because they're unsure about position. Whatever it is, you start to then spread out the riders. And so you can be towards the back, and you can hit that corner at probably 15 kilometers an hour as a guess. And so you then have washed off so much speed that what you have to do when it comes to the straight after the corner, you have to make that up again. So while the rider at the front is sitting on 25, you're sitting on 15 at the back and you're going to have to probably go to 30 or more in order just to keep up with the bunch. As soon as that happens, another corner comes and the whole process starts over again. So you can see this stop, start, stop, start really is a waste of energy and a waste of your mental time. And it's probably going to mean you're going to be spat out the back a lot sooner than if you just stayed at the front. It gets a little tricky at the front and it is quite competitive, but if you think about the damage that is being done to people behind you and how much harder they have to work, then it puts it into perspective and staying in the top 25 is where it's at. And rule three, if you're not in the first 25%, move up. So moving up is a little tricky when it comes down to criteriums because there is some politics about where you should and shouldn't pass. The first one on the inside. So this is talking about in the middle of the bunch itself and actually finding gaps. So either sliding through tight gaps or moving side to side if small gaps open up, if someone drops a wheel slightly and you can nudge your way in there. This is a little tricky, but you're going to be fully protected. It also doesn't 
guarantee that you're not going to be boxed in if something goes down because you've got riders either side of you. So then it gets a little tricky when you're trying to break out and you want to attack or you want to bridge a gap or whatever you want to do. And so you can get swamped by riders, get stuck, pushed to the back, and then you have to go through the whole process again. So if you're not confident with your skills and how you move around, then this probably is one of the harder ways to actually move up. So I wouldn't recommend it. Number two way of moving up, left or right. So depending on a few factors, including which way the wind is going, the length of the straight that you're trying to pass people on, the speed of the bunch, and actually the position of the bunch, whether they're in the gutter or they're positioning themselves because of the wind, it will will depend which side you actually move up on. You've got to factor these things in as far as you don't want to waste too much energy. If you start wasting energy moving up, then you're kind of defeating the whole purpose of staying in the top 25% to conserve energy. So it really comes down to experience when we're talking about moving up on the left or right. And not putting yourself down there. Okay, sometimes you get stuck out and you really have to just put your head down and move around. I would rather do that than drop back and have to start the whole process again. You don't want to continually do this in a race because it is going to wear you down. The third one and the most controversial one is around corners. So if you're on the inside, an absolute no, don't be a cock. Don't do it because it's not worth the grief to get a quick inside. Even if it's the final corner and you're going to win, there really is no point upsetting other people and putting them in danger just because you want some position that you couldn't get earlier. The other way is finding gaps. So being inside the bunch and kind of like moving up inside the bunch itself, finding a gap, someone that doesn't have as much confidence as you and they're dropping off a wheel and then just taking that wheel from them so they have to find another spot. You're really going to have to be subtle about this though because if you start dropping in heavy on someone or overlapping wheels just slightly when it comes to the corners, you're really just asking for trouble. So once we've got the positioning out of the way and we're always keeping Keeping our mind fresh and ready and we're in the top 25%. There are two options in a crit, much like many races. You either attack for the win or you are sprinting for the win. So have a flexible race plan. Go into a race with the race plan. Whatever it is, don't just sit in a race and be a sap and just suck energy and have no plan at all. Maybe that's your tactic if you're in a small stage race and you don't need to actually do anything to win if it's the last race. But other than that, have a crack, have a go. You never know what's going to happen, especially if you are competitive in the grade or you see some weaknesses in the tactics of the teams or other riders that you're riding with. So attacking, this is the first thing to know. Do you attack? Do you want to attack? Are you able to attack? Do you have the fitness? Is it really going to make a difference? What I would say is if you're not going for the sprint, attacking really is the only other option. I'm not a fan of just sitting in just for the hell of it. If you don't believe you've got a sprint, then have a crack at an attack. The options for how to attack Well, firstly, you want to be inside the top 10 when you do attack. You don't want to attack from too far back. That will just look like moving up very slowly. You'll be knackered and worn out by the time you get to the front of the race as it is. So you want to be inside the top 10 because your goal for attacking is separation, rapid separation, and possibly allies. You want to bring some riders with you because you're not going to be able to do it on your own unless you're some type of super freak. The counterattack 
is where I would start. The counterattack is always when there is a lull in the bunch and someone has just been pulled back or an attack has just been pulled back. Everyone sits up because they think we can have a break for a moment and that is when you hit them and you hit them hard. You can continually do this if you're in a team and you want to get someone away and people keep getting pulled in because eventually you're going to wear down the people at the front that are pulling the people in. The other one is the double attack. So the double attack, it's attacking and it's getting a bit of a gap. It's seeing how many people are willing to go with you. And if some people aren't getting on or you don't get the gap that you want, then backing off slowly will mean that you'll be pulled back in. And it's kind of that same lull and it's similar to a counterattack except you're doing both attacks. So that's when you hit it. And you hit it again hard and you take the people with you that went the first time. And then hopefully your break has a chance of getting that separation quickly. The other one is the roll-off. So rolling around the front of the bunch doing a turn, but slowly picking it up. Now, this is a pretty sneaky way to attack. I've done this a lot. I've also done it on the bike path with with commuters a lot because no one really knows if you're on the saddle and you slowly start winding it up. It's especially good if it's coming into a little tricky section, like a few difficult corners, or you're rolling into a headwind, and if anyone leaves a gap behind you, they're going to be in trouble and going to have to work just as hard just to find your wheel again, let alone attacking over you or pulling you back. The other one is bridging. So you're not the instigator of the attack and you have to make a decision once you get to the front whether you want to bridge across to a break. There are a few factors when it comes down to whether you should bridge across to a break or not, but I would hold off until we get into what happens when you're in a break itself because that will give you some ideas of what to look out for when you're actually considering jumping across to a break. So when do you do it? Okay, we've kind of talked about how you do it, but really if you're going to be in a successful break, unless again you are a super freak, it's going to be the second half of the race. It's going to be having a crack somewhere in the second half of the race when everybody has reduced energy there's been some breakaways already they've been pulled in people are starting to get tired teams are starting to get a bit ragged and unorganized and so are the people at the front of the bunch this is when you really want to have the crack and you want to do it either into a headwind a crosswind or into some really difficult corners or a really technical section of the course that makes it difficult for anyone to start organizing a pace line and getting things together the idea of getting a break quickly is you want to get a gap as quick as possible so that one person can't pull you back. You want to have enough of a gap that one person puts in a huge turn but then they can't do it so they have to peel off and someone else has to come through because that's when the confusion starts. If the people aren't from the same team trying to chase you back, then the second wheel may not want to chase so then you start getting some more time and that gap starts getting larger and larger. So definitely I've spoken about lulls and lulls after the primes or after fast efforts are really good. Also, the counterattack, like I spoke about before. So what to do once you're in the break? Now, this is where it comes down to a lot of experience or at least having practiced and practiced and practiced when you're on the edge, you're ragged, your lactic acid is coming out your eyeballs and you can't think clearly You have to somehow pull it together because what I would recommend, you have to be smart. So not only do you have to ride hard, but you have to be smart. Now, if you're the instigator of an attack and you've brought some people with you, you want to be the leader. You want to be the guy that's dictating the terms because everyone else, whether they've been in an attack before or not, they are really, really, really 
don't know what to do. They will be so on the edge physically and mentally that if you mutter a few simple directions, they're just going to follow you. I've been on both sides of this coin and I got to tell you, being the leader is the better one because you have the control. And if you can call put people through early and get them to take turns, then you can sit at the back watching. They're doing all the work and you have the time to assess the situation, whether you're going to go forth with this attack or you're going to sit up and get caught. So you start asking yourself questions as soon as you've got a decent gap. And really, you want to start with, is the break building a gap fast enough? Is the pack chasing? So again, have you got that separation? Have you got a gap that means that the pack has to form more than one rider into a pace line in order to try and reel you back? If they have started doing that early and you haven't got a gap, you may be in trouble. But if you look back and it's unorganized, then it's going to be better for the break. The second thought is how many guys are in the break? How many people have actually made it across to the break? Is there anyone bridging? And what is the ideal number of guys? Well, for me, it really is four to eight people. I've seen a lot of heavy hitters in A-grade races racing just two or three They can do it because they're probably pros and they can stick their head down against a mediocre field and just blast them. But when it comes down to lower grades, you really want four to eight people because you need that extra strength. Whether you burn these people out initially and some of them drop off, that's probably a better thing. But then someone's got to put it in early so you can get a big enough gap before the pace settles down and then you can start playing the next moves from there. So while you're thinking about how many people, think about who is in the break. Are they strong? Do you know them? Are they working? well? Do they listen to instructions well? If everyone is working tightly, it's very obvious that you should keep going. But if straight away, very early on, and you have half a race left and they're not working properly, you're probably going to be in trouble because as soon as it starts getting down to those last few laps, people are going to start choking. They're going to get a little cat and mousy. They're going to start playing games. Perhaps you can't avoid that stuff, but that's not what you want when you're first doing a breakaway. You want people that are willing to work, put their head down and suffer so your breakaway can succeed. The other thing is which teams are in the break. So if you are racing a race that has teams in it, is there big teams in the race, which means the strength back in the pack is going to be reduced because they're not wanting to chase. That is a really good indicator. So know the teams going into the race, know who the guns are, and whether they're there or their teammates are there, it's going to make a big difference as to whether you continue in the break or not. So if everything's working and you're working together and you can hold it together, the final decision is do you work or not? All of this is really going to give you an indicator whether it's worth it or not. I believe in a break you work as hard as the person that's working the least. So at least you're on their level and you aren't an outlier when it comes to putting in the work. So you can hold your head up high if you do come away with the win. But what I would say, if all of these factors are there and you feel confident with where you're at and your abilities, I would definitely work. I will not shirk the responsibility. When it comes close to the finish, that's when you can start considering your options again and look at what you have to do to win the race. And at a certain point, if you have a gap and you know the breakaway is going to be successful, then I don't see any problem with going to the back and not working as much as anybody else in the bunch. But remember, you have to be quite tactful with this. And I would not consider the way Tomar Vokla does his racing when he's in a break. He basically pretends that he is not feeling well and always drops to the back. 
and it's all bullshit to me. I would just be honest and sit there and not worry too much about everyone yelling and screaming at you, but definitely you have to protect your interests when it comes to the end of the race. So while we are talking the end of the race, the other type of attack is the last lap attack. Now, the last lap attack could be done in a breakaway if you feel you have the strength, or you could hold off for the entire race and just do it at the end. You have to be one hell of a rider, though, because you're talking... I don't know, well, depending on how long the actual course is, you're talking a minute or more of actually full-out hard work. What I would recommend if you are going to go for this is there usually is a bit of a lull before the last lap starts. People are trying to set up and prepare, but it usually hasn't started the jostling and the hard work yet. So that is your time to go. And the only thing that you have to do in a last lap attack is commit. Commit 100%. Put your head down. Do not turn around. Go into the corners faster than you've ever gone into them. Come out of them, attacking them like a sprint. You have to put it down, your head down, work hard, and cross your fingers that you get to that line first. Okay, so the other option outside of attacking is sprinting. And Sprinting, if you're not sprinting for primes, you're sprinting for the win. And if you're sprinting for the win, you have to conserve energy. There is no doubt about it that you're simply wasting any energy when it comes to riding a bike in front of anybody else, especially if it's in front of the bunch. You do not want to be there. The biggest lesson that you have to learn early on is staying on the wheel in front of you. If the race is in a gutter and you leave a gap, this is your responsibility to close it because you should be there and it's going to save you the most energy. As a side note to all of this, if you are having trouble, you definitely owe it to the rider behind you to smash yourself, close the gap, and then get out of there before it happens again. Also related to this, don't sit up. You want to exit gracefully if you don't have it on that day. That's just a bit of a warning if you start upgrading in your races, riding with the big boys, they're going to yell at you if you leave gaps. All right, so you've got to know how the race works. If you want to sprint for the win, you've got to know how the last three laps or the last five minutes or whatever is going to go down. You've got to know where the actual timing board is. You've got to be prepared at that moment to make your move. You can't just be dilly-dallying around and then all of a sudden you're going to drop into the top 10 and then you're going to do the last couple of laps and you're going to sprint for the win. You have to be prepared to know how that race is organized, what the last laps look like, if it's time plus laps or if it's just time, you have to know where the time board is and have an expectation of how long a lap will actually take. So once you have that idea, you really have to know how you're going to go for the win. Really what you're doing when it comes to the sprint you are racing for the last corner. That is where all your positioning and preparation needs to go, racing for that last corner. Now, this is because you want to choose your position in the last corner depending on what happens after that last corner and what type of sprint it actually is. So you want to be prepared about 10 minutes out before the finish. You want to be in the top 10. So you're moving up from the 25% into the top 10. Be careful. Don't get on the inside because you're going to be boxed in if something goes down and riders are just going to swarm around you and you're going to be at the back again and you won't have a chance. So you've got to fight for position and this is where it starts to get gnarly and I really like this part of the race because holding a wheel or getting a wheel that you want 
can be done tactfully without being rude or having bravado. It just takes a little more confidence than the next bloke. So pick a wheel or a lead-out train and stick to it. So the interesting thing and a bit of experience that I've had in this, there was a few races where I found this by accident. I was wearing the same color as one of the gun teams, but... As soon as I came around and it was two laps to go, the guy in front of me from the gun team yells out, are you on? Like, yes, I'm on. And he does a quick lash around. He sees the same color and I sat on his wheel as he took me right to the front. He did a lead out for me and I ended up winning the race and I made sure I thanked him afterwards. But that's a sneaky little tip. I don't know how often you can pull that off, but I would keep that in the back of your mind just for one day that you might need it. But you do want to pick your wheels. You want to pick the contenders. You want to know where they are. You want to know what the plan is. If there's a lead out train forming and you're not in it or it's not your team, then you want to know how you can get around them, how you can break them up and get into them. You have to really channel your Robbie McEwen here because because Robbie McEwen was the master of popping out of nowhere without a lead-out train and winning races in that style. So you just have to know where your positioning is, where you want to go into that last corner. The position into the last corner depends on the sprint after the corner. You basically have two options here, where you either want to come in first or second wheel, or you want to come in third or fourth wheel. If the line is close after the corner and it's a straight run and there's nothing that's going to stop you getting in your way from winding up, then definitely you want to get in first or second into that corner. But if it's a long drag to the line, if there's a headwind or if there's an uphill, that's where you want to be in third or fourth wheel in that last corner. And either way, as soon as you come out of that corner, if the finish line is very close, you want to come out of that corner and you want to just jump hard. Again, it's separate you want to form a gap. The bigger gap that you can create early on means the rider behind you has to close that gap and then come around you, which becomes a harder task the more gap that you actually have. So as soon as you jump out, and if you're doing this on an uphill into a headwind, you're wanting to hold back, hold back, but you are at a certain point wanting to jump out from your third or fourth wheel and make a run for the line. And you want to put all of your body into a sprint. I don't know how familiar you are with sprinting, and I don't want to presume that you don't know anything, but putting your whole body into a sprint is the best way to get the efficiency out of your system. You want to put full body, you want to be in the right gear, and you want to have your head up looking at the line. You don't want to deviate. I did make this point when the tour was on. Sagan slightly deviated when he was going to the line when Gerens won his stage. Now, it wasn't only the bike throw that won for Gerens. It was that he just went straight to the line. So the only way to do that is to keep your head up and look where you're going, and that is where you will end up. Hopefully with the win, and that is Criterium Racing. I'm getting so pumped just talking about this. I absolutely love Criterium Racing. It really highlights the type of riders that you're riding with, the type of rider that you are. It shows technical ability. It shows pure power and speed, but it also shows finesse when it comes to hiding in the bunch until the right moment. So the tech hacks and products section, and this week it's a product hush earplugs and they are on kickstarter it hasn't finished as of this recording but they have met their goal so they're on their way to producing these earplugs and i've got to say they're 150 bucks which sounds crazy expensive until you dig a little deeper and see what they actually do the cool thing about them they're earplugs for sleeping so they're not going to disturb you when you've got your head on the side on a pillow they're 
foam and they've got a little bit of tech stuff in there but it's not bulky but the features that are really interesting there's a personal alarm so these actually hook up with your phone like pretty much everything these days but hush notifies you and you alone that way you get the alarm when it goes off and you don't wake up anyone else this is pretty interesting i might have to pass this on to somebody that sleeps next to me the second feature is soothing sounds you can fall asleep to white noise ocean waves rainfall and more and you tie this all in with the app nothing too crazy about that there is the product bed phones which you can use but these if you can just forget about it plus they're blocking other noise out there's a notification filter which with the actual app that comes with the earplugs you control which alerts let you sleep and which ones will wake you up so the unimportant notifications just go through and all you hear is the alarm and emergency phone calls and the final one which is good because they're pretty small little things there is a hush tracker so if you've misplaced your hush you can find them with the paired app so overall i would say that if you're a light sleeper these are pretty cool combine them with an eye mask and you are definitely away and now that quote from the top of the show it's michael valgren the young writer from tinkoff saxo talking about his altitude training and how the young climbers in the team train to be able to dance on the pedals like their teammate el pirata The other interesting part of this information is that they were doing these in May in prep for the Giro, which is interesting because it is normally an off-season thing. Then again, they are mixing it up like Valgren says. It definitely is more power than strength, and doing power efforts like this is great preparation for the big bergs. And that is it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash crit to find any links used in this week's episode from there you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages but till next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into (laughs) 